The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? At the beginning of December, three Hong Kong protesters were jailed. Among them, the high-profile student protester Joshua Wong, whose name you will have heard of. They were sentenced from between 7 and 13 months for unauthorised assembly under China's new national security law. When people think about student protests in China, Hong Kong is probably what you think of. And you will also know about Tiananmen Square in 1989. But there's one student protest that started it all in modern China. May 4th, 1919. A moment etched in the minds of all Chinese but little talked about or known about in the West. What I'm trying to say, I guess, is that China is no stranger to student protests. And they are particularly potent for reasons that you will hear shortly. My guest today is the historian Rana Mitter, former head of the China Centre at the University of Oxford and author of numerous books on China's modern history. His latest, China's Good War, is out now. Rana, listeners might be wondering why we're taking them more than a century back to protests that few have even ever heard of, but we'll get to its significance shortly. Firstly, can you set the scene of what happened in that May 1919? Absolutely, Cindy. I mean, let's throw ourselves back just over 100 years ago. In one sense, the world is quite familiar with the sight of Chinese students protesting, whether over the last year or so it's been in the streets of Hong Kong, you know, in the subway stations and in the plazas and parks of of that great city. Or for those who are a little older, perhaps, you know, something like 30 years ago, Tiananmen Square, 1989, with students, you know, gathering in the the, the heart of uh, the Chinese capital in Beijing. But what people seeing those haven't realised is that 100 years ago, A very similar scene, perhaps one of the first of these sorts of scenes, happened also in that spot, right in front of the Forbidden City. And any tourists who've been to China and seen that most classic part of of any tourist trail, that uh, wonderful red and gold and purple series of buildings actually dating from the, uh, the Ming Dynasty, will know that it's a fantastically impressive site. And that's exactly the reason that some 3,000 students in their late teens, early 20s, very young people, gathered on the 4th of May 1919 in front of the old imperial palace. And this was essentially something that was a very unusual sight in terms of the way in which China was in that early 20th century. Until quite recently, China had not been a country that had sort of mass demonstrations in the sense that it had become a kind of commonplace in the 20th century, not just in China, but around the world. So in a sense, these students were making a very modern gesture. And they were making a gesture because of something that is well known to any European or indeed American, I think, uh, from high school, but which is very rarely associated with China. And that is the Treaty of Versailles. Now, that's a, a word or a name we hear quite often when we think about the negotiations at the end of, of World War One. you know, after the Somme and Passchendaele and all those familiar names to any Western listener. But for the Chinese, the Treaty of Versailles meant something very different. I mean, put very briefly, China 
had actually participated in World War One. It's not well known that that was the case, but something like 100,000 workers came to the Western Front to dig trenches and be very much part of the Allied war effort. They expected at the end of the war certain territorial concessions, certain colonies that existed uh, on Chinese soil and which had been controlled by the German Empire would, of course, be handed back, as they thought, to Chinese sovereignty on the grounds that China had helped to defeat Germany. But to their shock, they found that, in fact, these territories weren't handed over to Chinese sovereignty. They were handed over to Japan, another imperial power, instead. And this led a group of several thousand young students in a fervour of patriotic nationalist anger and pride to make their way right there to the centre of Beijing and protest about the fact that their government was weak, that their country didn't seem to be able to stand on its own two feet, and that somehow, in some very fundamental way, China's political existence almost seemed to be in danger. So that's what that, that student demonstration 101 years ago actually meant. And Rana, setting the scene in terms of the politics of China at the time, listeners will probably associate the 1800s with the Qing dynasty. What was happening in those first two decades of the 1900s? Well, I'm going to say something about this. But before I do that, I'll just say that one thing that even historians of China tend to admit is that the early 20th century is quite a complicated period in Chinese politics. In, in a weird way, contemporary listeners may see something much more monolithic when they see the, the news, because, of course, the Chinese Communist Party is very much in control top down. And it seems in some senses that there's only one place that you have to look for authority. The China of 100 years ago, the early 20th century, about the year 1919, was a place that was much more split. Uh, Technically, it was a republic which had been formed in 1912 after the overthrow of the last emperor. And anyone who's seen Bertolucci's famous film of 1987 about the boy emperor who was kicked off the throne will know that that was a time of huge political turmoil. But the thing is that the Republic of China, founded in 1912, was not a stable state. It was not a firm, solid republic like most of the ones in, in Western Europe at that uh, at that time. Not that they were so solid either, as the Weimar Republic shows us as well. But in the case of China, in practice, most of the power did not go to the parliament, which did exist and was elected in Beijing. It actually went to the warlords, as they were often known, Jinfa, the militarist leaders who had their own private armies, in a sense, that split up China. So if you lived in Shanxi province, really you had to pay much more attention to what the militarist leader Yan Shishan would think than anything that the people in the capital in Beijing would actually uh, say. And there was another factor which was mixed in, which was that although there was a sovereign government of China based in Beijing, actually foreign powers, the British, the French, the Japanese, the Americans, had an awful lot of authority. Just one very quick example, something which was really hated by the Chinese at the time called extraterritoriality. Mm. That meant that if you were a foreigner protected by the treaties, a Brit, for instance, you would not be subjected to Chinese law when it came to commercial or even criminal disputes. You would have to go to a kind of shared foreign Chinese court, a mixed court in Shanghai or elsewhere for the case to be heard. So it was a time when China was technically a sovereign state, but in practice was actually very vulnerable. So foreign influences, as well as domestically split politically and geographically speaking, when it comes to these students and in that context, were they fighting for a nationalist mission to get this notion of China back on its feet? Or was it things like democracy and anti-corruption that we see in later protests, for example, of the 21st century? Well, it's really important, as you say, to understand what these 3,000 students gathering in front of, uh, of, of, of the Forbidden City really wanted. And On the one hand, 
And this is something that gives a bit of a link with student demonstrations, which have been something of a constant in China throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. One thing they ha- they've all had in common is that they are nationalistic. Now, I want to be careful when I use that word, because there's often a rather careless assumption that when we talk about Chinese nationalism, we mean the same thing as Chinese xenophobia. And these are not the same thing. There are xenophobes in China. There's no doubt about it. But nationalism in this sense means more a sense of pride in their own country. And in the case of 1919, a real fear, a real sorrow that China was a very large country, but a country that seemed to be on the back foot and very weak in international society. So that was one thing that those Chinese students, you know, the best, the brightest, the elite, uh, most men, but not entirely men, women also, were, were, were fighting for. But there was also a point of principle, and this became a bit of a slogan that even now I think any educated Chinese person would recognize, and that they were fighting for, for two people, as they put it. One was called Tsai Xianshang, and the other one was De Xianshang. One translates as Mr. Science, and the other one as Mr. Democracy. Now, what did this catchphrase mean? Well, in some ways, it sums up the essence of what I think most political radicals, political advocates of change in China in most of the 20th century were looking for. The first thing, science, actually doesn't just mean science in the sense of putting on a lab coat and going in and doing some physics. It meant science in the kind of sense the Germans sometimes use of Wissenschaft. In other words, the development of knowledge, depth of knowledge that was going to underpin the modernization of Chinese society. This desperate desire to try and learn from the West, but also from China's own resources as to how to turn this weak country, a backward country as they saw it, into something that could actually take its place on the world stage. And then Mr. Democracy. Now, people will look at that and think, well, what on earth does that mean in the Chinese context? And I think for many of those young Chinese, actually, it meant something in terms of democracy that we would recognize, perhaps having an elected popular assembly, uh, you know, general elections, uh, a wider participation in society of groups like commercial organizations, uh, feminists, uh, ethnic minorities. All of that would have been quite familiar to them. But it also spoke to something that I think is 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 more specific to the Chinese context, which is the idea of democracy as popular participation. That almost seems banal to anyone thinking about it today, because, you know, what is democracy if not popular participation? But you have to remember that under the system of the emperors, which had only really fallen at the end of 1911, just a few years before this this all happened, popular participation was something very new in China. Previously, the idea had been that, of course, there would be bureaucrats and lots of people would have different roles in society. But the idea of political involvement as of right in the wider politics, that was still relatively quite alien to many people until the late 19th century. And so by talking about democracy in that sense, the Chinese students were throwing down the gauntlet to a much more participatory and much more radical form of politics than had been seen in China up to that point. You say that the government at that point was a republic, it had an elected assembly. But of course, we can't talk about protests in China without talking about the state's reaction to them, republic or not. We know about the police brutality in Hong Kong and also, of course, the national security law that has since been passed and implemented. We also know the story of what happened at Tiananmen Square in 1989. So what happened to those students in 1919 and how did the government react to them? Well, I mean, that's absolutely right, that they were not shouting into a vacuum. China had been a formal republic since 1912 with an elected president, an elected parliament. But it's worth noting that by 1919, the system had gone horribly wrong. Technically... China was still a republic and would remain so on the mainland until 1949 when it was replaced by 
the People's Republic, which still, of course, exists today. We should say the Republic of China continues, of course, on the island of, of Taiwan, but that's a slightly different story. For another podcast. <laughs> For another podcast, let's, let, let's hope. But sticking to 1919, what actually happened by that stage was that essentially military leaders were really in charge. So up to about 1916, it had been a man called Yuan Shikai, who had tried to make himself the new emperor briefly and then stepped down, decided to stick with being the president. He had, he had died in 1916. Various other military leaders were in charge uh, by that, uh, that stage. So they were very unhappy about the idea of any kind of popular participation, which might push back against this sort of militarist rule. On the other hand, And this, I think, is a very important message to take. The students who took part in that particular demonstration on the 4th of May 1919, you could say got away with it quite lightly, because actually they didn't just demonstrate. They went a bit wild, it has to be said. And actually, when I say that, perhaps I'm I'm being a little forgiving to them because they ended up breaking into the home of a Chinese government minister who had basically been thought to be far too close to the Japanese. And they ended up beating him up. They basically dragged him out out of in, out in his house and there's a there's a, rec- a, a record by a famous chinese intellectual of the time a man called uh, lord jalun who would go on to become a very senior chinese academician and he himself didn't take part but he witnessed i think that uh, some of the other demonstrators got one of the the bedposts uh, from a wooden um, a wooden a metal bed and basically beat this minister up so that he had so many of the sort of round metal ends of the bedstead hitting him so many times that they said quotes that his skin looked like it had been covered in fish scales because of all those kind of round bruises made on it it's a pretty horrible thought now They thought that they killed him. They didn't kill him. But it has to be said that that was a pretty violent act on their part. Then it appears the students pretty much all skedaddled. They (laughs) headed off. And some of them were brought in for questioning by the police. But basically, in a lesson which has some parallels in the present day, some of their university professors got in touch with the police and basically interceded, saying, look, it's young, enthusiastic, patriotic people. They went too far, but they meant well. Can you let them off? And the tenor of the times, uh, we have to say, is that most of them pretty much got away with it. Rana, you mentioned there these students and their university professors who were largely pretty supportive, and also that this is a relatively new phenomenon in Chinese culture. Is it the result, uh, these student protests, is it the result of a new form of educational system in China? I mean, is it a surprise that all of these protests tend to happen in Beijing, where you've got the Tsinghua University and the Peking University, essentially the Oxbridge of China? Well, one of the things, Cindy, that's so fascinating about the student demonstration is that it's simultaneously both an example of how something completely new and unprecedented was happening, but also something that in some senses had a really very long precedent in Chinese history. So to explain what I mean by that, in terms of the long history, China has, well, I'm going to push a bit and say always, pretty much always been a society that particularly values education. Now, we might say that lots of societies value education. But if you go back to who some of the earliest figures to shape Chinese culture were two and a half thousand years ago, you know, the scholars like Confucius and Shinza and Han Feidza and so forth, disputing scholars is basically part of the basis of what makes Chinese culture actually come alive. And if you fast forward, you know, quite a, a way to just 1000 years ago, that's when you see the real beginnings of something that would, in a sense, be with China for the best part of a thousand years and in some ways is still with us today, which is a reverence for examinations, taking civil service exams as a way of actually getting through the bureaucracy and getting to the top in China, something that the West only introduced partly by copying China 
many hundreds of years later. Well, the Mandarin. The idea of the Mandarin, the term itself, you know, Mandarin Chinese. The term is not accidental. It comes from the idea that you learn and study that form of language and then you become a top bureaucrat. So that whole culture around studying for the exams, which included wearing a special sort of gown, learning classical uh, phrases and language almost by rote. I think our current Prime Minister Boris Johnson might uh, see some parallels with his own Latin and Greek education there, you have to say. All of this is very, very long standing in Chinese history. And even in the early 20th century, when the traditional examinations had been abolished or adapted to make way for more modern subjects, many of those students still felt themselves very much in the tradition of that longer tradition of Chinese education. But what was very new about the students at Peking University, Tsinghua University, these universities which would become, you know, legends, they are legends in, in China today, getting to those places is really kind of top, top-notch stuff, was that they were often studying for what um, what Tsai Yuanpei, the first and perhaps most, uh, not first, but actually one of the first and most distinguished chancellors of Peking University would say, education for a world view. In other words, not just learning one specific thing, language, science, whatever, but trying to bring it together into a view of what a modern China was supposed to become, a China that had thrown off the emperors, thrown off the old ways of doing things and was trying to find its way in the modern world. And that search... That search for modern China, to use the phrase of the great historian Jonathan D. Spencer of Yale uh, University and a Brit, I may say so, if I, uh, if I could throw that in, really expresses what it was that those students were thinking of, the mindset that they had when they turned up in front of the Tiananmen, in front of the Gate of Heavenly Peace in 1919. Very much heirs to that long tradition that China learnt and would use education to improve itself, but also drawing on the reality that the modern world of the 20th century was something completely alien compared to what any Chinese student over thousands of years would ever have seen before. Mm -hmm. So the students largely got off scot-free, but regardless of what they were protesting against, they didn't succeed in that. The Treaty of Versailles was signed a month later and the Japanese got what they wanted. But Rana, you've previously argued in your book, A Bitter Revolution, that the May 4th spirit and the implications of that movement can be felt throughout the 20th century in China. Can you give us some examples of what you mean by that? Absolutely. And well, thanks for mentioning A Bitter Revolution, a book I wrote about 15 years ago, but which actually I look back at recently because we've just had the 100th anniversary of the May 4th movement. And I would still stick very much to the central line that I wanted to take in that book, which is that those demonstrations on the 4th of May 1919 are still a key to understanding actually the whole trajectory of China's history in the 20th century. You can find it in all sorts of places. I'll just mention a couple. One is a very obvious one, or at least for Chinese people, it's a very obvious one, which is that the current ruling party, the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping, continues to claim that its birthplace was the turmoil of the May 4th movement. And in fact, one young man who I think was not on the demonstration, but was working as a library assistant in the years immediately following that May 4th demonstration was called Mao Zedong. We, of course, know him as Chairman Mao, the paramount ruler of China uh, for an authoritarian leader and, and tyrant to, uh, to many who ruled between 1949 and 76. But of course, in the early 1920s, he was just a humble library assistant at Peking University, earning a pretty low wage, but also drinking in all of that scholarship that was pouring into China from the outside world and using it to form his own ultimately Marxist worldview. But to take one other example that shows that over the wider length of time, this idea of the May 4th movement, the Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy kept coming back. 
in the book I talked about two episodes. One is the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, this immense period of violence and horror and destruction. And then the Tiananmen Square demonstrations of 1989, which were, of course, peaceful and joyous until they were broken up by Chinese tanks uh, shooting down and killing protesters. They seem like very different events. But in some ways, they both picked up on that May 4th idea. The Cultural Revolution of the 60s, because what it did was to take up the idea that was very central to May 4th, 1919 for many people, which was that China's old culture had to be renewed or even destroyed. For many of the the harshest critics of traditional Chinese culture back in 1919, Mao being one of them, but another one being the great Chinese author Lu Xun, who's still read by, I think, all Chinese high schoolers. I imagine maybe you read some Lu Xun in high school yourself, did you, Cindy? You know, this is someone who really reacted very strongly against what he saw as the, the 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 kind of vicious cannibalistic nature of traditional Chinese culture as, as he saw it and basically the Cultural Revolution half a century later was a chance for Chairman Mao to take those ideas and say as the ruler of a very large and powerful country as he was by that stage you know that task that we began in 1919 in the 1920s of throwing out all of that old culture that was holding us back it's not over yet and it's you the youth of China, the Red Guards, as they were known, the teenagers at the time, who have to do that final job of really expunging all of the old culture from our society. So it was a sort of distortion through a mirror, you might say, of that spirit of renewal that you saw in in the original May 4th of 1919 to something much more destructive and violent in the 1960s. And then just to say about 1989, again, Many will be familiar, even if you weren't alive at the time, with the 1989 demonstrations at Tiananmen Square. It's worth noting that the timing of them was by no means coincidental. They were very much called together so that the students and workers who were there would gather on the 4th of May 1989, exactly 70 years after the original 4th of May 1919, a gesture that didn't mean much in their terms of that date to the outside world who were more concentrating on figures like the the, the Statue of Liberty or the, the Goddess of Democracy. But to any Chinese, particularly any educated Chinese, calling a demonstration for 70 years on, on, on the 4th of May was a very clear signal, a challenge to the Communist Party at the time that we the students, this group of the elite, the best and brightest in, in China, think that you have failed to measure up and we are challenging you. And the Chinese Communist leadership of 1989, Deng Xiaoping and everyone else, knew exactly what the students were saying to them. And how do they feel about that? Harking back to previous protests is something that even the Hong Kong protest has done because they use the Tiananmen Square June 4th anniversary as a chance of holding vigils. How does the Chinese Communist Party, which has now become pretty much the establishment as opposed to the revolutionary force it was during the time of 1920s, how do the government feel about its changing roles? I mean, there's that really interesting tension there, isn't there, that they were the ones who started with this revolution, and now they're the ones who want just to keep the status quo. You're absolutely right, Cindy. And one of the things that the Chinese Communist Party clearly feels is that it is the the sole proprietor, you might say, the only owner of the legacy of the May 4th era. June 4th, of course, the anniversary of Tiananmen Square 1989, isn't really mentioned in China, other than in various kind of subversive uh, forms. It's not officially uh, acknowledged in that sense. But the ownership of May 4th of 1919 is something of which the Chinese Communist Party is very, very jealous indeed. And it also remains extremely nervous about any student movement that might challenge it. So 
Let me give you one much more recent example, which is slightly faded from the news, but it's very, very important, I think. And it was brilliantly reported about a year ago in the spring 2019 by one of the excellent Beijing correspondents for the Financial Times, Yuan Yang. And mm. Yuan Yang basically reported on young students at the same institutions, there's always the same institutions coming around again, Peking University and, and others in Beijing, who were protesting to the party, protesting to the Chinese Communist Party, that the party wasn't doing enough. But they weren't protesting because they wanted more democracy or more liberalism. They were protesting because they said that the Chinese Communist Party was not Marxist enough. And in that sense, that they were not doing enough to protect the rights of workers and the poor. In other words, these students had made, as it turned out, the mistake uh, in, in the eyes of the party of taking the party entirely at its word, saying, you are supposed to be the defenders of the workers. You are supposed to be the people who are kind of breaking down class barriers. Great. Well, we want you to do that in that case. And I have to say that although it's it's unclear what happened to them, many of those student leaders found themselves clearly disappearing off the scene, uh, no longer visible after a very short time. The reason being that the Chinese Communist Party is fearful of many different parts of society challenging its rule. But students have a particular sort of moral authority in Chinese tradition. And they also remember that a very long time before, even Chairman Mao, if not exactly a student, was at least a sort of student agitator back in the day. And that if he could overthrow a government, then maybe other students could as well. Yes. And what about now, Rana? You mentioned those Peking University students from last year. But do you think that student protests are still a live possibility of the sort that we saw previously? There's still a live possibility with today's Chinese youth. There are people who say, for example, that because of materialism, that's been prompted by rising living standards after reform and opening, that the Chinese people are relatively satisfied that they won't be going onto the streets, at least in the mainland. Do you think that's fair? I think that, yes, it's important to differentiate what's happening in Hong Kong, where there's been more attention in recent years, and what's happening in the mainland. I think anyone who knows China and Hong Kong will see that there is a distinction. Hong Kong, again, that might be you know something for another podcast. I'm sure we'll come, come back to it, all, all of us, in, in due course. But I think that dissatisfaction from the youth there, not least because of their economic possibilities being constrained, as well as the genuine desire for more democracy, is going to remain quite a live wire. So one does need to, to watch that space. I think the mainland is a different story these days, but that doesn't mean that the spirit is absent. I think it's fair to say that because quality of life and incomes have been going up quite considerably in the last few years, COVID-19 has certainly put a break on that for the last few months, but overall it's fair to say that that's gone up. And also because students themselves have in some sense become at the forefront of the next phase of China's development. In other words, as China moves from being the workshop of the world making furniture or clothes or plastic toys to being a place that seeks to put really high value goods and services at the top of its economic model. So famous firms like Huawei, which of course everyone has heard of now, having never heard of it at all a couple of years ago, uh, or indeed um, a whole variety of areas from artificial intelligence to financial services. Alipay would be a good example of that. It's clearly well-educated people, which means lots and lots of students, that are central to China's economic model. And if that's the case, then students, as we see in China today, given good scholarships, they're treated pretty well by the state. They're certainly told that they must not get mixed up in politics. But so far, there's been enough incentive put about. I don't just mean money. I mean, money is part of it. There's no doubt of that. But also, I think that students are being given by the current government in China 
a certain amount of, you know, genuine standing in terms of their mission as part of building a new patriotic China that's going to make its place in the world, something which is clearly causing a great deal of worry to many other countries in the world, which uh, didn't expect China to innovate or grow as far and as fast as it has done. So in that context, I think my fear would be something slightly different, which is not that students won't be political, but the kind of politics that they might try and espouse would be a type which is actually much more bound up with the idea that they want to get behind China's rise in the world. And while China's rise in the world could come in a whole variety of ways, and the government is is always keen to stress the peaceful aspects, the fact is that China is also becoming a country which is keen to try and make sure that its own views are heard, often in a quite confrontational way, the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy that some of us have heard about quite a bit in the the last few, few months. And I think it's important to note that students in China don't necessarily have to buy into that agenda but there's no guarantee that they they won't. So a new generation of nationalistic Chinese could go in a rather different direction from that May 4th generation of, of a century ago. Ranamita, thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.